Our passage this morning is from the very short book of 2 Timothy. We're going to be looking at the first few verses of this letter. Uh, If you want to go ahead and start turning there, it's on page 995 of the Pew Bibles that are underneath your seats if you need to find one. Uh, So 2 Timothy is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, his mentee, his, um, who he trained up in the ministry, named Timothy. Um, and this is a letter where we get to see a little bit more of Paul's softer side. Paul is not one to uh, pull punches or sugarcoat things. If you look at his letter to the Galatians, he lays into them pretty hard. He's a very passionate person, but we're here we see from that passion also comes a very deep compassion. He has a dear deep love for Timothy. And it's all the more important to know that as Paul is writing this letter, he's in jail for the second time in Rome, and most likely he knows and he thinks that he will be dying soon, and he was killed shortly after. So this is a letter that Paul wrote when he was in jail. He was very lonely at this point. Some of his friends had were out on the mission field. They were out doing ministry, and some of his friends had abandoned him. But nonetheless, he was alone in jail. And he writes this letter, and in it you'll see he is reminiscing. He's being reminded of Timothy's friendship and how much it means to him and how it's an encouragement to him in his time of loneliness. But he's also writing to encourage Timothy. He's encouraging him in his ministry, in his genuine uh, desire to preach the word. And he's doing so because Timothy is in a very difficult situation. Paul sent him down to Ephesus to, uh, to deal with a very difficult issue of some highly motivated false teachers. Some false teachers who are pushing an agenda, a selfish agenda, um, also during a time that Christians at large are being persecuted. And so Timothy is, is uh, struggling. He is naturally timid. We know from some of the other letters and information about Timothy, he has a, a, a timid nature, but through the power of the Holy Spirit was given the ability to preach and teach and lead very well. But because of the suffering, because of the persecution that's happening, he may be falling back into his old patterns of being timid, of being afraid. Uh, this is a very personal letter a very deeply emotional letter of strong but gentle encouragement and exhortation. Um, This is written to Paul's beloved mentee, his his final words um, to a pastor, Timothy, who is very, very tired and very discouraged. Now, this is certainly a letter that applies directly to pastors and leaders of the church But we are all called to ministry. You are called to ministry as a teacher, as a doctor, as a janitor. That is your mission field. And there are times when you get very discouraged. And there are times that you get very tired. And it feels like the flame within you is very, very low. The pilot light is very low. And this is where Paul writes this letter. In those moments of deep, confounding tiredness. 
So if we see, just you can kind of see just a trajectory of, of how he opens this passage. You see he's, he has his traditional opening, and then the next few verses he, he talks about his fond memories of how they are an encouragement. And then verses 6 and 7 he has the exhortation and the encouragement, and that's where we're going to focus most of our time. But then uh, verses 8 through the end, we, ha- <laughs> excuse me. we have his explanation and his, his evidence of the exhortation that he has. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We come before you in humility uh, with the need to feed upon your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts so that we would not simply hear the word this morning, but we would receive it and be nourished by it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Second Timothy, starting in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason... I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So I use the term, the flame or the pilot light, that, that's, that's in us and because of this, this term or this statement of fan the flame. And we know that this, you know, one of the things that, that you learn with campfires or, or fires that are in your fireplace, one of the ways that you can stoke the fire, get the fire to raise is by waving more air onto it because that's what needs to burn. And it lights up the embers. And so you see, this is the action that, that Paul's talking about. And there's something very interesting to understand there. Because he's telling him to fan the flame of the gift of God. So this tells us something about the gift that God gives each and every one of us. is something that we have to stoke. Something we have to fan into flames. 
to not be complacent, to work with, to increase. And this is what this is the exhortation that Paul gives to Timothy. Fan the flame of God's gift. And then he tells him how? By reminding him of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who dwells within him. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so we're going to look at those three things today. The power, love, and self-control of the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing he says here is not to fall back into a spirit of fear. There's good fear and there's bad fear. Good fear is fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord brings life. Fear of man brings death and destruction. And this is the fear that Paul is talking about. Not falling into the trap or back into the trap of fear of man. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of contrast how fear of God works through power and what fear of man does with power. So let's look at this first. Power. The spirit of power. The Holy Spirit of power. As children of God, we are royalty. You are sons and daughters of the king. You walk around this world, this earth, with authority. You have authority over sin. You have authority over darkness because of the spirit who dwells within you. You are royalty. But not only that, you, as a child of God, know that there is no person... There is no circumstance that can change or redirect God's perfect loving plan for your life. Nothing can happen. You can't even mess up God's plan for your life because of the power. And this is where suffering falls into this category. Everybody suffers. Because of the effect of the curse of sin, nothing works the way that it's supposed to. And we suffer. And how we handle this suffering or how we understand this suffering is a large part of how we live our lives. And it would appear that suffering is something that these false teachers are picking up on. Because you see in verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor for me, his prisoner, for sharing in the suffering. It would appear that the false teachers are using the fact that Paul is in jail and Paul is suffering as evidence that what he teaches isn't true. They're saying if Paul is suffering, that's a weakness, that's a failure. He must not be doing something right. God must be cursing him for that. This is along the lines of what we know today to be called the prosperity gospel, which simply summarized is God wants you happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if you're not any of those, it's because there's a certain sin in your life. And you're being punished. But Paul is saying very pointedly here, it's because I am an apostle. It's because I am a minister. It's because I am living out the truth of the gospel that I'm suffering. Not that it will keep me from suffering, but the very opposite. In fact, suffering is a large part of being a Christian. Now that's the bad news. There is good news. When we are seeking, uh, more bad news, sorry, got to do more bad news first. 
we all fall into this mindset of the goal of life being happiness, healthiness, wealthiness. And we begin to think that our true happiness and security can come from people or earthly things. And when we do that, suffering is not an opportunity for joy. Suffering is not an opportunity to share in the gospel. It's something to be ashamed about. And that is at the root of a lot of our understanding of this world, this this word of shame. Shame. I don't like people to know that I'm struggling. That's a shameful thing. I don't want people to know the thoughts of my mind because they're shameful. And we see all the way back from the very beginning, the very first thing that Adam and Eve did when they realized they were sinful is they covered themselves up and hid because they were ashamed. So because they were naked, they were vulnerable, and they didn't like what they saw, and they were ashamed. And that's what shame does to us, causes us to draw back in, to hide, to cover. And so everything that we do in our power is to hide our shame. And when your motivation is to hide your shame, you can never truly be you. You can never truly be honest because you're constantly trying to hide the shameful suffering, the shameful weakness that you have. But we have been given a very different calling. We have been given the Holy Spirit, power. This is opposite. The gospel is offensive to the world. The gospel is offensive to the sinful nature, and this is why. The world says, work hard, good things will happen. If you're good, good will happen to you. But that's not the reality of life. And the gospel says the very opposite. The gospel says freedom and salvation does not come through your strength. It does not come through your ability. It comes through your weakness. And we see Paul talking about that in verse 9. He says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And being told you're not good enough is offensive. Being told you can't do it on your own is offensive by the world's standards. And we can fall into that trap as well. But we know that through the gospel, through the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified, out of weakness and humility brings life, comes freedom, comes salvation. We're freed from the shame of failure because my shame was killed on the cross with Jesus Christ. I no longer have to be ashamed because I have been washed clean by what Jesus Christ did for us. It is through our weakness that we are made powerful. It's through our humility that we are made powerful. And at times... Do you ever feel the temptation or the need to apologize on God's behalf? There are times when you have to confront difficult issues in Scripture that 
we don't necessarily want to be in there. And at times we have to almost say, I know that's what the Bible says and I'm sorry. But you don't have to. God doesn't need us to apologize on his behalf. We are free to admit our weakness without shame. We are free to admit and declare the truth of the gospel without apology. Because we are called to a holy calling. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. To be holy is to be set apart, to be removed from, to be set above. We have been pulled as the people of God. You have been pulled from that self-circulating shame cycle. I had it much more eloquent in my mind ahead of time, but that, that, that cycle of shame and fear that just goes around and around and around. You have been called by the power of the Holy Spirit to something different. So power, not shame, power. But because we have this holy calling, because we have been called out and removed and we've received Jesus Christ, we also receive the spirit of love. And what is love? We see in this in the purpose of suffering. Do not be ashamed of the testimony, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, suffering is not only not something to be ashamed of, but it's something to share in, to pursue, to share with other people, to share the truth of the gospel. What is love? Love is being willing to suffer for others in order to show and lead them to the truth. This is completely contrary to the words of the world. You do you, take care of number one, love yourself before you can love anyone else. There's tiny truths in those, but not in themselves. Being willing to suffer for, the, for others in order to show and lead them to truth. Now, how are we able to do that? When we understand that we have this undeserved status of royalty... That we are eternally saved, eternally protected. Does that not then free us up to be honest with our suffering? To empty ourselves for other people. Knowing that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are free to suffer. We're free to be humble. Because we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves to one another. We can be honest with our weakness and our failures. And we can share that and share in that suffering with other people and allow them to be honest as well. So here's what we see. Love, when motivated by fear of God, is an outward, other-seeking thing. True love is outward-seeking, other-seeking. When we have the motivation of fear of man, love is inward And self-seeking. What do I get out of this? What's in it for me? The false teachers were doing that. 
They were falling into that trap. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, in a different area, talks about the false teachers there. And, and this is what he says of them in Galatians 4. He says, The false teachers, they make much of you so that you will make much of them. And what he's saying there, he's saying the motivation of those false teachers is not for you to know truth. It's not for you to know the love of Christ, but so that they may be filled, so that they may be rewarded, so they may feel good about themselves. They flatter you, so you will flatter them. They tell you what you want to hear, so you will tell them what they want to hear. That's not love. That's selfishness. Uh, an illustration that, that I like to use, and, and I forget where it originated from, but there was a kingdom a long time ago that had a king. And there was a peasant who loved this king. The king was generous. The king was, was merciful and cared for them well. And he had a carrot garden. And so at the, at the end of harvest, he went and took the biggest carrot he had at his harvest. And he presented it to the king and said, King, I want to give you this gift. It's the best of what I have. And the king sees his heart. And says, because you have given me this gift, I will double your land. And the peasant goes away rejoicing. Well, there's a nobleman who sees this interaction and says, if he gets double the land for just a carrot, imagine what would happen if I gave him a fine steed. So he goes and he brings him the, most, the finest horse that he has ever given. And he presents it to the king. And the king says, what are you doing? You claim that you love me. You claim that you care for me. Yet, who are you giving this gift to? You're not giving this gift to me. You're giving it to yourself. Because his motivation of giving that gift was not adoration, was not outward focused. It was what's in it for me. And this is what we can do with our false understanding of love. God-fearing love is genuine is seeking the good of others. Man-fearing love is using people for selfish gain. Pastor Wheat talked about this a couple of weeks ago when he was preaching on Samson. He said Samson was a user. Samson was a user of other people. If we think about that, how often are human relationships like that? Dating relationships, what's in it for me? Business relationships, what's in it for me? Neighborhood, what's in it for me? Your property value goes up, my property value goes up. Hey, mow your lawn. What's in it for me? And what happens is we pervert love and actually make it something hateful. We make it something selfish. Because you don't have the freedom to give of yourself when you're having to prove yourself to the world. But true love is genuine. True love is able to seek the good of those because we know that we have been eternally protected, eternally forgiven. Motivation behind the things that we do. Are you using people or are you loving people? You've been given the spirit of love, not fear. Love, not hate. And here's how we know, because verse 12. 
Second part there. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. There are days when we don't feel like that's the case. There are days when we wonder how much more we can take. And we don't feel like we have anything more to give. Be reminded of this gift of God. Fan the flame. Be reminded of the truths. And this will bring us to the third gift of the Holy Spirit, which is self-control. When we know and trust that God's plan is both sovereign and good, we are freed to be self-controlled. God's plan is good, it is loving, and it cannot be thwarted. Now, self-control is a good thing. Uh, The opposite of self-control or lacking self-control, two things can happen from that. Um, or two things happen when we are experiencing self-control or when we are self-controlled. Number one, it frees us from having to make or wanting to make impulsive decisions. Impulse. Quick. Get it over with. Do it. Move on. I, I, that's, that's my bend. If there's a decision to be made, let's do it. Let's move on. Let's go. I struggle with that, with being impulsive, not wanting to be patient, not wanting to take time. Just do it. But the other thing that self-control, the Spirit's, Holy Spirit self-control, is that we are freed or we, we are, are kept from seeking other control, trying to control other people. Because at the root of true self-control is trusting that you're not in control, which is a little ironic, I know. But how often in our lives do we wish that we could control others? other people, other circumstances. If we're honest with ourselves, it's probably pretty often. Now, Timothy was probably being tempted to let go of his self-control, to not live out that truth. And there's two ways that he could have done that. Impulsively, he could have quit. He could have walked away, said, this is too much, this is too hard. Or... He could have been other control and he could have joined in with the false teachers to manipulate people, to use people. And so this is what Paul is, is, is confronting him about. He says, I know you're tired. I know you want to give up. And then he says something very interesting. Look at verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you had heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So the, the Greek words there for pattern and, and sound um, are one of the other words that can be for pattern is like example, an outline to be followed or an example to follow. And sound can mean healthy or sturdy. And so this, this is what, what I see here is the gospel... The word of God, the message of faith in Jesus Christ alone, is a sturdy example. In a world of wobbly uncertainty, the word is a sturdy example. A sturdy outline that has been proven true again and again and again 
all throughout history. Sin in the world has tried to destroy Christianity and hasn't even, hasn't even gotten close. In fact, in the most times of persecution is when the church grows the most. This is a sturdy, tested, sound truth that has stood the test of times and will continue to do so. So this is what he's saying. Be self-controlled. Trust the sturdy example. Trust the testimony that we have seen that suffering will not end you. Be patient. It can be tempting in a time when the world is telling us something different to be impulsive and say, okay, yes, let's do it. Let's just do that. I, I, I was thinking just this kind of popped up into my mind. Let me, let me paint just a little bit of a, a picture for you. Think kind of like an Indiana Jones style movie, right? Treasure hunters, you're going into these ancient temples and there's booby traps and cavities and all sorts of, of cool things like that. And you always have kind of those stereotypical characters, right? You have the old, grumpy, grizzled uh, adventurer and then the young whippersnapper, headstrong one. And they'll be going down a tunnel and they'll see this clear path and the young one's like, yeah, perfect, let's go. And the old grumpy one's like, not yet, son. He's like, what are you talking about? It's wide open. He says, look at this. And he throws like a, a rock or something. It's like, pew, 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 bunch of arrows. Yeah, I said pew, pew, pew. Uh, yes. Right? That's what we have. And what do we see there? We see wisdom is better than impulsiveness. That self-control. But how did he know that? Because he'd been there before. Because he'd had the map. He had that sturdy example to follow. Then the next time that that young whippersnapper goes through, he has that sturdy example in his mind. And he can be more self-controlled. This is what we are called to. This is why we're called to community. This is why we are, God always calls us as a people, not as individuals. So that we may follow the sturdy example of the gospel with people who have walked it before. Look to the sturdy truth, the sound words of the gospel. They alone will keep you afloat in the hurricane. Don't fall wayside. Be self-controlled. Salvation is God's strength given to us through our humility and our dependence upon Him. Now, you want, how do we receive this? How do we receive this, this spirit, this spirit of power and of love and of self-control? It's both the easiest thing in the world and the hardest. You have to give everything to Jesus. He requires complete surrender. But all you have to do to receive grace is to take it. We were at uh, RYM Colorado a few weeks ago at the high school, and Richie Sessions was our main speaker. And he gave a, a simple little illustration that's really st struck with me as far as how we are called to have a childlike faith. Not a childish faith. Not an immature faith, but a childlike dependent faith. 
and receive the gift of grace. And he said, if I were to walk up to any one of you right now, and you don't really know me, and say, hey, want a cookie? How are you going to feel about that cookie? You're going to be a little wary, right? What'd you do to it? What are you going to want in return? But now what if I walked back into the nursery and I went up to any three-year-old and said, hey, want a cookie? What are they going to do? Yoink. Right? Instantly. No question, no wonder, cookie, good, yes, I want it. This is grace. Jesus offers it. All you have to do is take it. You can't earn it. You can't warrant it. So stop trying. I'm saying this to myself. I can't prove myself to God. I can't prove myself to you. Because you can't offer me anything. I can't offer you anything. But Jesus can and does. Receive grace. Have a childlike faith that says, I want that Holy Spirit of power and of love and self-control. May that be the, the, the goal of our everyday life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there are days that we feel like we just can't go on. There are days that we feel like the waves will overcome us. Lord, help us to know, Lord, that you are powerful. You are so powerful with the word Jesus calmed a storm. He says, stop. And the waves stopped. Lord, help us to know that not only are you powerful, but because you have given us the, your Holy Spirit, we are powerful. And we are free to be humble and admit failure and share in the suffering of one another. Lord, you know the things in our hearts that we're holding on to, the things that we think that are giving us life but are actually dragging us to the bottom of the ocean. Lord, make real to us your love and your power and your glory so that we may cling to that. If there are those who are here today, Lord, who have not received the gift of your Holy Spirit through your grace, I pray that you would put a burden upon their heart to receive this gift freely like a child would. Lord, may our hope always be in you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.